Well, today, uh, today we have a very Lenten gospel reading. Uh, it is the, the telling in, in, in somewhat sobering terms of God's actual vision for His people. The main, the main point of our reading today could be summarized in some sense as, this is what God wants from you, and it is simply this. God's vision for all of His people is that they would bear fruit, that we would bear fruit. Throughout the Scriptures, we see how that's His intention for all of us. If you look in the Old Testament, you'll see that one of the primary figures used to describe Israel is a vine. Look at Psalm 80. It's all about Israel being a vine. And of course, a vine exists to produce fruit. And so, Israel is spoken of as as this vine that God plants, that He grows, that He tends Uh, ultimately that she would bless the world with God's own goodness, reflect God's character in the world uh, in a fruitful way. And so we were always, always meant to feed and delight the world uh, by bearing fruit. That's what Scripture seems to tell us. And now, before we jump into some of the challenging components of what Jesus' teaching here might mean, there are uh, sort of, Jesus closes with a challenging image, I'll get to that. But before we enter into that, I would like you all to simply see the goodness of this vision, because it reveals to us that we were made to be something. The simple idea that we were made to bear fruit reveals to us that that we were meant to be something, to do something in this world. Several weeks ago, we had this uh, six-week intensive course on faith and work. It was uh, an exploration on Uh, the way our faith sort of uh, impacts and governs and dictates our careers and our vocations. And we had all kinds of great conversations about what work is and isn't what we sometimes want it to be. And as the course went on, one of the things that I began to notice is that there there were essentially two main aspirations for folks in that class. And here's what they were. The first is is that everyone wanted to be uh, significant. Everyone at some point or another wanted to have some sort of career or role that was impactful, that was a blessing to the world, that was a way of giving back. Uh, And then others had a different mindset. Others said that they, uh, not in the same words, but in some effect said, I don't necessarily feel the need to be important or to, to make a huge difference. I don't feel capable of doing that, but I do want to have a fulfilling life. I want to have fulfilling relationships. I want to have meaningful experiences and uh, hopefully not damage anybody on the way. Now, both of these are, of course, fine in a way. There's nothing innately wrong with either of these. But as we began to discuss these two options, we saw that there are very real limitations with each of them. Think about it. With the first option, the whole idea of doing something significant, very laudable. However, the challenge is if you, you get to some point where it's hard to determine if you are actually doing enough. You get to the point where you start thinking, what if I just advanced this one project a little bit farther? Or if I just moved up one more position in my firm? Or if I just finished this one writing project that I know would be a great gift for others? See, eventually you run up against your own finitude up against your own God-given limitations, and ultimately this desire to to, uh, aspire, 
turns into a kind of legalism. What it feels like, the way you know you have it, is if you feel burnout. You feel burnout. And now with the second option, where you recognize your limits, you see that you might not be able to leave your great mark on the world, but you simply want to accumulate some level of satisfaction, it might be more cautious, more self-aware in a way, but really, at its base, if you think about it, it's just another form of consumerism. Because with that mindset, you will always, we will always want more, more experiences, more comfort, more whatever it is, and eventually this just becomes a kind of mild-mannered Epicureanism. And the way you know if you've pursued this one is if you feel like your life is just sort of meaningless. You feel a sense of meaninglessness and a lack of direction. And of course, if we're being honest, myself included, we have all, at some point, probably felt one or two or both, both of these, meaninglessness or burnout. But God's vision for our lives, this is what I want you to see. If we take seriously this imperative that we are to bear fruit, it means that God's vision for our lives involves so much more than a kind of brute legalism or a kind of Epicureanism. It is holistic and realistic. It is rich, and it's enough to satisfy you day by day. But before I go into that in detail, I want us to look closely at this gospel reading. So if you are listening closely to that reading, you'll notice that there were two scenes and the gospel reading that we just heard. There was one at the beginning where a crowd approaches Jesus and asks him several questions. And then it quickly shifts, without, without much of a mark, into Jesus telling them a parable. And it's that first scene that requires a little bit of unpacking. It requires some context. So we are in chapter 13 of Luke's gospel. And you'll know if you've read back you'll know that uh, Luke's gospel is one of those gospels that's uh, eminently concerned with matters of our lives. It's concerned, uh, he, Luke, the author, is concerned about um, serving the poor. He is concerned about recording the way Jesus gives us a new way to live and to be in the world. And so, a few verses earlier, back in chapter 12, Jesus tells his followers, uh, or those who've gathered around him, things like, uh, get ready. God is coming again. Be on guard, he's coming. Or he says, don't try to collect wealth in this world. Rather, collect the kind of wealth that will last forever. Or he has that one statement about making sure that we acknowledge Jesus in the presence of others, even when we feel embarrassed about it. And he too will acknowledge us in the presence of the Father in the life to come. That's all, in other words, in chapter 12. All of these challenging statements about the way that we are supposed to live. And so here in chapter 13, some of those people who have apparently heard Jesus' teaching are curious about what it might mean to actually follow him, they're convicted, they walk up to him and they ask him about this certain group of Israelites. These Israelites were killed by Roman officers, it says, in the middle of offering a sacrifice to God. That is, they were doing exactly what they should be doing offering their best fruits to the Lord. And because of their religious convictions, Roman officers uh, slaughtered them in the middle of their own service. And because they were Jews and they cared deeply about blood 
This was an incredibly humiliating way to die. It would have meant that their blood mingled together with the blood of their sacrifices, which is uh, outlawed, forbidden in the book of Leviticus. And so it was humiliating for them. And the assumption that this crowd has here is voiced by Jesus in that very beginning section of verses. It's this, surely, this crowd seems to think, surely those people who experience such an atrocity, surely they have done something wrong. Surely they actually weren't that good of Jews in the first place, and thereby, surely we are doing something right. Surely we measure up in some way to what you've just detailed for us. We're not like them. But Jesus here quickly corrects them. And he says, unless you also repent, you too will perish. These are really harsh words, to be honest. Probably not what they expected. But what Jesus is saying is, do not compare yourself to others. He says, don't stack up yourself next to your neighbor. It will never work. It will never do you any good. He says specifically, those people who died in such an atrocity were not worse sinners than you. Thereby, all of you, all of you must repent. I like to think of it a little like this. Uh, I grew up with the, the, the boy who lived across the street from me growing up. Grew up to be this incredible track athlete. We went to high school together. We ran track together. I was a very mediocre track uh, athlete, athlete in general, actually, not just in track. And uh, Miller was very good. And then uh, we both went on to um, compete in college. Again, I maintained my mediocrity into college. And Miller uh, absolutely excelled. He just got better and better and better. And by the end of his uh, career um, at a D1 university, he had shattered a bunch of records and um, was then recruited to be on the United States track and field team. He, he went professional by some mysterious, I have no, how did it happen? I still wonder this. How were you so good, Miller? Um, uh, anyway, so he went on to compete on this professional level, and one day I was home during Christmas with Miller's family. Again, our families, our houses were right across the street from one another. We were walking from his house to my house, and I just thought, you know, I wasn't that bad in track. What would, what would it be like if we raced? You know, I might be able to, to keep up. I might be right behind it. Who knows? So I said, hey, Miller, you see the, um, you, you see the light post about 100 yards away. You, you want to race? Of course, he says yes. And uh, I promise you, as soon as I said go, he was literally 10 paces ahead of me. I mean, it, it was not even, there was no instant where it was ever close. But the, my point is, he was on an entirely different level. He was wearing loafers. He wasn't breathing heavy. And he was laughing at me the entire time. He was so, so much better than me. And my point here is that uh, when I compared myself to my cross-country team at the little college I went to with Miller, who competed on this global level, it was just another, it wasn't even the same. It wasn't even the same thing. And you see, I think it's easy, easy for us to look at other people's lives and think, well, at least I'm not like that. It's easy when we compare different experiences to say, well, I'm, I'm not him. I may not have succeeded in the way that I wanted in my vocation, but at least I'm not there. You see, we do it in all sorts of ways. We do it with our neighbors. We do it with articles that we read on development. We do it with self-esteem. We do it with our career growth goals. 
And what Jesus teaches us here is that we do not look. We do not look to human standards of moral or spiritual growth as our guide, or else we will continue, continue to exhaust ourselves. In other words, we don't look to degrees. We don't look to bank accounts. We don't look to resumes. We don't even look to social science research in order to establish where we are in light of God's own eyes. We look to what God says about us in order to see what our lives truly should be. For instance, we look at things like the Ten Commandments that we just read at the very beginning of this service. It's why we read it at the beginning of this service, so that we might accurately see where we stand before God. We see it in the teachings of Paul, one who wrote to specific Christian communities who struggled with actual problems, where he can ask them to conduct their lives in particular ways. We see it in the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, multiple chapters about what it looks like to pursue a life that is good and true, honorable and satisfying. And you see, this is such an interesting temptation for us because we do this comparison game all the time and in so many different ways with very sophisticated tools. I have another friend who is a researcher at uh, an institute at the University of Virginia, and he and a friend of his, who's a sociologist, wrote this book called Science and the Good. It's a, a worthwhile read. I commend it to you, Science and the Good. And in the book, these scholars search out the way moral philosophers and moral scientists tried for many, many centuries to establish morality by means of scientific research. So they started at the beginning with Locke and Hume and Descartes and all these sort of famous philosophers who made efforts to establish what the good truly is. And the book is complicated and detailed, and I can't give the whole thing here, but what they discover is essentially that there was no conclusive, empirically verifiable result about all of these efforts, about what goodness really is. In other words, they, they discovered that scientific research, they include the social sciences here as well, it can tell people about how to achieve particular behaviors, but it cannot tell us what good behavior actually is. It struggles to do that. And so their argument was, we as a whole society, we can decide collectively what we think is good, and then we can use scientific research to enforce particular behaviors, but if we want to establish what the good actually is, what the good life is, what, what, what flourishing truly looks like, then we need something else. We need something beyond us. We need something that tells us what goodness actually is. And here's why this is important for you and me. Because it means if you want to determine in your own life what makes for a good and satisfying life, it means you'll need something else. It means you'll, you'll need something more than metrics. You'll need something more than a graph that charts your progress. You'll need something more than comparing your life with other people, whether that be in sophisticated or unsophisticated ways. It means you will need of a revelation of God to determine where you are. And I'll tell you this, if you use Jesus Christ as your lodestar, what good life is, if you use the Bible, you will need to begin every single effort pursuing that goodness with repentance. You will need to start with repentance. 
not because God's expectations for you are cruel or hopelessly high, but because all of us together are so cultivated in alternative visions of what the good life really is, what actually brings us happiness, what actually brings us meaning, that we have to reconstrue how we see the world in the first place. We need to repent in other ways. We need to turn to something new. Colin, our rector in charge right there, likes to point out to our staff, and he has on several occasions, uh, that people actually love Lent. Uh, I find this strange, personally, that people love Lent so much. It would seem like folks would be attracted to Christmas or Easter or any other sort of holiday, not the one where you sort of feel sad and gloomy, but he's right. People love Lent. You see it evidenced in things like our Ash Wednesday service where hundreds of people show up to get ashes smudged onto their foreheads and to be told that they are all passing away. People love Lent. And one of the reasons I think people love Lent is because it is the one chance, it's the one place where we get to affirm all together that things are not how we hoped they would be. It's the one place in all of our lives where, where instead of trying to be better than someone else, instead of trying to be just a little above the curve or measure up in whatever particular metric matters most to us, it's the one place where we can wholeheartedly say before God and before each other all together, I am not the way that I want to be. I'm ready for something else. Look, let's all be real with one another. All of us, all of us have parts of our hearts or our minds or our emotions that we wish were different. Don't you? I certainly do. There are parts of me I would change right now if I could. It doesn't take a social scientist or a moral philosopher to tell you that. But Jesus tells all of us, repent, turn to me. If you want to live out the vision of the good life, the first step, the first thing you need to do is turn away from your false metrics, turn away from judging yourself in light of others, and turn to what real goodness actually is. Because you know, and I know, and we all together know that all of the other models of goodness and flourishing, the achievement model or the consumerist model, whatever it might be, they are not satisfying our desires. And social science actually does confirm some of that. So Jesus says again, repent, repent. Turn away from whatever it is that you have been doing and fix your gaze on me. And this is precisely where Jesus introduces this parable of the fig tree. He says there was an owner of a vineyard who came to collect the produce that was rightly his, and when he approached the vineyard, there was nothing on the branches. So the vine dresser said, just give me one more year. He said, I'll lay fertilizer, I'll do whatever it takes, I'll trim, I'll do anything. And if there's no fruit at the end of a year, then you can take it then it's gone. You see, the hidden goodness of this parable is that the time that God gives you today, today, is a chance for Jesus Christ to cultivate you. You see, in the same way that Jesus reestablishes Israel as the perfect Israelite in himself, you see what he does. Jesus becomes what Israel could never be, that she might continue into a future that we don't know. In that same way, Jesus wants to cultivate you and your life 
if you will let him do it, if you will open your life and your heart to him. Jesus says it simply in John 15. He says, if you abide in me, if you become my disciple, you will bear fruit. You will feed the world. You will delight the world. You will be a blessing to the world by my own power. And you see, I think this is good news for you and me. Not just because it promises growth in some quantifiable way, but because this is not a legalism that you would get elsewhere in the world. It is not a Pelagian sort of pull your, yourself up by your bootstraps commandment. Nor is it a form of inert grace where you live forgiven, but you are static, a, a kind of loved but still stuck attitude where God's grace covers you, but you don't change at all. The vision that God gives in Jesus Christ is one of growth. He uses it again and again and again. He says, take my yoke on you. Learn from me. Grow. My burden is easy. Follow me. I will make you to bless the world. I think there's probably no greater representation of this image of the good life, so to speak, perhaps than Moses. That's why that Old Testament reading was fixed in our lectionary in the place that it was. If you think about Moses' life, it's astonishing. Moses, as you realize, was born a slave in Egypt, no power. He murdered someone out of rage and had to uh, flee in order to keep his own safety. Everyone found out about it. And as he was living in Midian as an exile, he stumbles across the burning bush. And there, of course, his life is changed. God says, I have a calling for you. You will be the one to lead my people out of slavery, out of Egypt, into the promised land that I am preparing for them. Moses, of course, says, no, no, I am not the one to do that. And God says, no, you are. I know that you're one. Why? Because I will be with you. So Moses, the reluctant leader, gives in. He obeys. He does what God says. God remains true to all of his promises. He leads the Egyptians out of slavery. They go through the waters of the sea. They come into the desert. And eventually, at the very end of all of their wanderings, Moses has led them to the very brink of the promised land. And do you remember what happens right before they go in? Moses, in his faithfulness, is still not allowed to enter. And Moses dies up on a mountaintop overlooking where he had come from and where his followers would one day go. And I want you to just imagine what it might be like to be Moses standing on the mountaintop looking back on the entirety of his life. He would have looked across an expansive desert. The footprints would have gone all over the place. Years and years of wandering, circuitous failures, surely many quandaries about what the whole purpose of this was in the first place. In other words, when he looked back at his life, there was not quantifiable progress, but there were years of confusion. But then at the very top of the mountain, right when it seems everything should be lost, of course he sees the promised land. He dies in the presence of the promised land across the river. And I wonder if our lives are the same in a way. <clears throat> when you look back on your life, when I look back on my life, I see many years of circuitous wandering. I certainly don't chart a sort of growth metric that looks like quantifiable progress. 
And yet, just like Moses, not in Egypt anymore. Moses died, not an Egyptian slave, but a free citizen of the kingdom of God. And so my challenge for you today is to reestablish yourself in God's work in Christ. Open your heart to God's work in Christ. Open your heart to the work of the Spirit in such a way that you might see the promised land. It will not look like a quantifiable tract of progress, but it will certainly look like graciousness again and again and again. And is it not great news that at the end of our lives we don't look back and see sheer heartbreak, we don't see uh, a, a, a sort of anxious accumulation of goods, we don't look back and see a, a, a longing to um, establish our place. But if you establish yourself in Jesus Christ, if you abide in his word, if you turn to him for your comfort, your source of life, you will be satisfied. And you will get to gaze upon the beauty of the promised land. That is a good hope for the Lenten journey, and I hope you all will take it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.